Welcome to Season 8 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and through our partnership with Last Word on Sports Media Podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. Their motto is simple. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. This week, we feature the longtime voice of the Seattle Mariners and a Chicago native, Rick Riz. And I turn on the Cub game, turn down the sound, and do play-by-play. At 12 years of age, this is 1965 now, and uh, I would do play-by-play of Chicago Cub games down in the basement occasionally. And I said, you know, I want to be that voice coming out of the radio. That's another story. But I had the best of both worlds. I had the Cubs during the day. And my mom loved Ernie Banks and Ron Sano, Billy Williams. So did I. At night, I had the Chicago White Sox. I loved Louis Aparicio. He was my hero growing up as a kid, along with Nellie Fox. If there's one thing you can say about Rick Riz, he's energetic. From first pitch to last, Riz has enthralled listeners to his description of the game of baseball, whether in the minor leagues, Seattle, or Detroit, for 48 years. It's a passion born from childhood and nurtured through college. He's witnessed the likes of Randy Johnson, Alex Rodriguez, Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, Ichiro, and now Julio Rodriguez. Holy smokes, but grandma, get out the rybrid and mustard? So, Rick Riz, tell me a story I don't know. Hey, buddy, how you doing? It's great to hear from you, George. We go back uh, many, many years, 40 plus years, going back to our SIU days. But uh, yeah, uh, over the last uh, 48 years of broadcasting baseball, eight years in the minor leagues, 40 in the big leagues, and so many years with the Mariners here and in between with the Tigers, you know, I, I've got a lot of stories, and one is kind of a funny story on how I got the job with the Seattle Mariners, eight years in the minor leagues, and every year, as you know, you send out a, a resume and tape and, and hope that somebody likes your tape, and the Mariners did in the fall of, uh, let's see, 1982. In the early part of 1983, it came down to myself and another finalist. And uh, I was supposed to fly to Southern California to meet with the owner of the ball club, George Argerus. But the day before, I was to fly out from Columbus, Ohio, where he was the voice of the Columbus Clippers and the Yankees AAA Farm Club. The Girl Scouts had a cookie campaign kickoff to sell their annual cookies. And I went to a local mall with seven other radio and TV personalities, there were eight of us, for a cookie eating contest, which I highly don't recommend any, <laughs> anybody to do. So I went to this cook-eating contest the day before I was to fly out to Southern California to meet with George Archbishop, the owner of the Mariners, and I ate 33 cookies in three minutes. You and ate I didn't 33 eat cookies in how long? Three minutes. I had milk. I had, you know, everything. It just jammed these cookies down my throat. <laughs> and I didn't even win. I finished in third place. <laughs> you know, Mrs. Fields' cookie for finishing third place. There were two other idiots ate more than I did. Anyway, the next day, I got up early. I had to go to the radio station to do my morning drive sports. I got up at 4 o'clock every day, you know, be at the station at 5, on the air at 6. But at 7 o'clock in the morning, I felt like I was having a heart attack. And I called the team doctor, and I was really scared. So I, he said, go to the hospital right away. And I got to fly out to Southern California at about 11 o'clock that morning to meet with the owner of the team. This is my dream job. My 
I thought my one and only chance to get the big leagues. And here I am, I think I'm having a heart attack. So I went to the hospital and he checked me out. He said, did you have anything to eat last night or this morning? I said, well, I went to this cookie eating contest for the Girl Scouts last night and I had 33 cookies. He said, what? I said, yeah, I was in this cookie eating contest. And he said, well, I got to test you for a heart attack and I got to take a blood test. And every three hours I need to take a blood test. So you're going to miss your flight. And I thought, oh my, I just blew my chance to get to the big leagues after running buses for eight hours, 16 hours, 18 hours, 20 hours in the big leagues, or excuse me, in the minor leagues from Amarillo to Jackson, Mississippi, from Memphis, Tennessee to Orlando, Florida. But I was stuck at the hospital. So I had to call the uh, director of broadcasting for the Santa Mariners, Melody Tucker, and explain to her that I was going to miss my meeting with the owner of the team. And she said, why? And I explained the story about the cooking contest for the Girl Scouts. Last for a second, she didn't believe me. She goes, I'll need to call Mr. Idris and let him know you're going to miss the appointment. So this was during the days long before cell phones were invented. And so she said, call me back in a half an hour, which I did. And she said, can you be in Mr. Idris's office tomorrow? Because he's leaving for three weeks on a vacation to Greece. And I said, I will be there. I was hooked up to an EKG machine. They wheeled me out to the, the lobby of the emergency room there to make that phone call. So anyway, long story short, if that's possible at this point, I, I didn't have a heart attack, but I stressed my sternum from eating 33 cookies in three oh, minutes. Bye. So the next day, I fly out to Southern California, and I meet with Mr. Idris. He bought the team in 1981. Now, this is January of 1983. And so uh, we're sitting there. We're talking for about 45 minutes to an hour. And then he looked at me, and he pointed his finger at me across the desk. He said, now, why did you miss your meeting yesterday? Mm. And he knew the story. But I said, you know, the Girl Scouts had their cookie campaign kickoff, and I ate 33 cookies in three minutes, and we laughed about it for a few minutes. And then, George, uh, five minutes later, after this long conversation, laughing about the cooking contest, he reached across his desk with his hand and shook my hand. And I'll never forget what exactly what he said. He said, anybody willing to risk his life for the Girl Scouts is my kind of guy. He said, welcome aboard. He said, you got the job. <laughs> so I, I have the Girl Scouts to thank for uh, the opportunity to get to the big leagues after eight years in the minor leagues and the cooking contest and the the heart palpitations and everything, uh, it turned out to be worthwhile. You know, honestly, I thought he was going to reach out and offer you a cookie. No, <laughs> I wouldn't have eaten it. <laughs> hey, no listen, you're, you're lucky this wasn't the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. Oh, God, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't even enter that thing. I, <laughs> no way. Joey, what's his uh, name? Twitter. Oh, yeah, it, he wins every year. Okay, I so I, I mentioned Holy Smokes, which is your trademark. But yeah. grandma, get out the rye bread and cheese. Tell me a story. I Mustard. Don't know. Get out oh, the oh, rye the, bread and the mustard. Mustard, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Forget about the cheese, the mustard. <laughs> uh, that, that was the home run call with the bases loaded for Dave Niehaus. And Dave Niehaus, I owe him everything. Uh, he was the guy that got me to the big leagues in 1983. He's the one that listened to my tape and wanted George Arduos to hire me. And uh, when the bases were loaded and somebody hit a home run, a grand slam, it wasn't uh, fly, fly away, which was his home run call. All of a sudden, he yelled. And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez now. And the fastball swung on and hit the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back, and it is. Get out the right bread and the mustard this time, Grandma. It is a grand salami. 
And David was one of the greatest announcers in baseball history. Uh, and uh, sadly, he passed away in November 10th of 2010. Uh, I was here for nine years. I went to Detroit for three. Things didn't work out in Detroit, as you know. And I, and David got me back. And thank God I didn't miss the 1995 season. So I owe him everything. So anyway, I, I'm trying my best to keep his legacy alive. Always talking about Dave, how great he was to the new set of fans that we have here up here in Seattle. So they remember. So anytime the bases are loaded and one of the Mariners hits a, a home run, a grand slam, Swing and a fly ball deep to right field. Bautista going back to the track to the ball. Get out the right bread and mustard, Grandma. It is grand salami time. Grandma gets out the rye bread and mustard and makes a salami sandwich in honor of Dave Niehaus. I mentioned some names of great Seattle Mariners stars, but most recently, Julio Rodriguez, who was a driving force basically behind the Mariners making the playoffs. He looks like a Hall of Famer. George, he's amazing. 21 years of age and all that talent wrapped up in that body. And But it's the, it's the joy that he plays the game. It's his work ethic. It's, you know, what his parents did with this kid. You know, he, he, he's got a smile on his face all the time. It reminds me of another young kid we had at 19 years of age back in 1989, Ken Griffey Jr. And I tell people I'm not going to compare the two of them yet, you know, but they played the game with the same way. Just like as a kid when I played out in the sandlot with my buddies, you know, that's that's the way he plays the game out there in center field. And when he comes up to hit and junior was the same way, Ken Griffey Jr. And at the age of 21 rookie season, he's the American League Rookie of the Year. No doubt about it. Uh, you know, he, he goes out there and it, and the ball club looked at this young man, his ability uh, to play every day. Uh, and and they gave him a 17 year contract. You know, when they didn't have to do it, it's his rookie year. We've got this young man for a long time. But it's all about not only the talent, but it's all about this kid and what he brings to the organization and to the fan base and how he works so hard every day. Uh, they said, you know, we want to wrap this kid up for a long time. So he's going to be a Mariner until he's 38 years of age. So there's a lot of options, his options, ball club options. So he can go 12 years, 14 years, 17 years. And this young man is going to make a lot of money, and he's worth every penny. You've been behind the mic for some very memorable moments, but I have to believe the one that happened last season to send the Mariners back to the playoffs for the first time in 21 years has to be near or perhaps the top of your list. And on top of that, became a YouTube sensation because we see you making the call. The 3-2 pitch, swing and a drive, deep to right field, stay That's at the top of my list. Uh, yeah, uh, Cal Raleigh hitting that home run on September the 30th, a pinch hit, walk-off, solo home run way out the right field above the Hidden Hair Cafe, which is a restaurant high above the bleachers in right field, for Raleigh to do that in front of 47,000 fans going crazy. To finally break uh, the curse of not getting to playoffs, a 20-year drought, to get to the playoffs for the first time in 21 years was one of the biggest moments in the history of this franchise. Before we go back in time, I'd like to get your thoughts on some of the great Seattle players. First, and perhaps foremost to me, 
and likely to a lot of Mariners fans, the incomparable Ichiro Suzuki. Oh, my goodness. This kid, uh, you know, he was a star in Japan for nine years with the Oryx Blue Wave. But Ichiro was the first position player to come over. But we had no idea how good this young ball player was. Uh, his arm in right field is one of the greatest arms I've ever seen in baseball. Brown ball, base hit in the right field. Heading for third is Terrence Long. The throw by Ichiro. Beautiful. Peggy, get him. Holy smoke, a laser beam strike from Ichiro. The ability of putting the bat on the ball like he did so consistently, hitting the ball the other way, his speed, uh, his knowledge of the game of baseball, his knowledge of the history of the game of baseball, his preparation was off the charts. He did everything every day at the same time. And he was the catalyst for that ball club. And in 2001, the Seattle Mariners, with each row leading off, uh, the Mariners won more games than anybody in the history of the game of baseball, 116 games. And that's without Ken Griffey Jr. and Alex Rodriguez and Randy Johnson. And each row, you know, was the catalyst. He was the guy who led off and, uh, you know, started a ball club off to their winning ways. Well, let's talk about another Hall of Famer, the big unit, Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson. Pitching on guts, pitching on adrenaline, pitching on sure guile against the New York Yankees in this one. He was the starter just two nights ago on Friday night. Here's the lineup and the 2-2 pitch. Fastball strike, three goals. He got him looking. Randy was the most dominant pitcher I've ever seen take the mound. His slider was so good against right-handed hitters. He would throw that slider to the back foot of right-handed hitters. They'd swing and miss, and the ball would hit him in the back foot. So Randy had his first no-hitter, career no-hitter, and uh, we had our first no-hitter in the history of our ball club. How about Ken Griffey Jr., who also had a cup of coffee with the White Sox? Jr. was the, the, the best player I've ever seen, the greatest player I've ever seen. At 19 years of age, made the ball club at spring training. He was the best player in the field. And he did everything right. And playing like he was playing in his backyard with his dad. Eventually, he did play with his dad the following year in 1990, which was, to this day, for me, one of the greatest stories in, in baseball. Father and son playing on the same team, you know, in the big leagues. And then the story just got better when they hit back-to-back -back home runs a few weeks later. Fly ball sliced to fairly deep left center field. Debo White back to the track. The wall makes the leap, and the old man has done it. One more. Yes, yeah. 3-0 pitches hit deep into left center field, and Bishop will look up, and father and son have hit back-to-back -back home runs. My, oh my, it's that in your baseball history book. He played the game the way it should be played. He reminded us every day that the game of baseball should be fun. But Ken Griffey Jr., George, no doubt about it, in my mind, was the greatest player I've ever seen. I love this kid, and I still call him a kid. He's 55, 56 years old. <laughs> When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution. Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates. 
You'd be hard pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MR-DUCK. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vents. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duct works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duct, 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Seattle's been your home for many, many years now, but Chicago is where you are from and where you're born. And we have a few things in common not the least of which is growing up both a White Sox and Cubs fan. And I, you try to say that on radio, which I did on an annual basis when I was doing a talk show, and you would have thought you said something blasphemous. But you and I grew up watching Jack Brickhouse, the legendary right. announcer who was the most noteworthy longtime voice of the Cubs, but who also did White Sox games. Tell me a story yeah. I don't know about growing up in Blue Island. Yeah, um, I tell everybody, uh, they, you know, when I'm telling them I'm from Chicago, the south side of Chicago, they say, oh, you're a White Sox fan. I said, no, I'm, I'm both. Because when I was a kid, I was born in 1953, and I'm six years old in 1959. And I would come home from school, and my mother was the biggest cup fan in the world. She had a little black and white TV set, you know, in the kitchen. She was the best cook in the world. Oh, man, homemade spaghetti sauce and meatballs and eggplant parmesan, homemade noodles. But... Uh, she was a huge Cub fan. So I'd come home from school, as you did, and the Cubs were always on TV. In any case, here it is. A brief glimpse of American baseball played in the biggest arena in the world. All the way from Wrigley Field in Chicago to the Coliseum in Rome. And so I would watch the game with my mom, or I would go downstairs to our big Zenith TV down in the basement with my dad, you know. And i turn on the Cub game, turn down the sound, and do play-by-play. At 12 years of age, this is 1965 now, and uh, I would do play-by-play Chicago Cub games down in the basement occasionally. And I said, you know, I want to be that voice coming out of the radio. That's another story. But I had the best of both worlds. You know, we had a sandlot behind my house, you know, the movie Sandlot. My life was the exact same way, including the dog. But I had the Cubs during the day, and my mom loved Ernie Banks and Ron Sano, Billy Williams. So did I. At night, I had the Chicago White Sox. I loved Louis Aparicio. He was my hero growing up as a kid along with Nellie Fox and all the other great players on that team, Early Wynn, Billy Pierce, Ted Blazewski, you know, and Sherm Lawler. So, you know, they had Chicago on their jersey. So I loved them both. So I grew up loving both the Cubs and the Chicago White Sox. But, yeah, I was both a Cub fan and a White Sox fan and proud of it at the time. You wrote Jack Prakas a letter when you were 12. He took the time to write me back. And I got this letter from WGN. Saying, you know, uh, you know, I asked him, I wrote a letter, said, I want to be a major league broadcaster just like you. How do I do it? And he wrote me back. He said, you know, work hard, go to school, do well in school and believe in yourself. Everything that you would tell a 12 year old kid. You know, I did that. You know, went to Eisenhower High School, 
in Blue Island, Illinois, on the south side of Chicago. I played baseball there and loved it. I went to Southern Illinois University uh, where you went and what a great program for the students to do everything at WSIU. We had our own TV station, WSIU TV, WSIU radio at SIU. And I had a chance to walk on and I made the baseball team there. Played on the JV team for two and a half, three years and played for Richie Jones. Bob Parcham was our head coach for the JV team. So anyway, I spent four years at SIU, got a job in the minor leagues, eight years in the minor leagues. Now I get to Seattle. In 1983, I've been with the Mariners now for 37 years, in between three years with the Tigers. So spring of 1983, Dave Niehaus and I and Kevin Kremen, our producer engineer, we drive to Mesa to go play the Cubs. And Mr. Brickhouse was at the game that day. But he had been retired for a couple of years. I think Harry Carey and my old Hamilton were doing the games in 1983. So Dave Niehaus goes, there's your hero. Go see your hero. Go see your hero. And he was signing autographs. This is long before the ball game started. I said, nah, he's busy right now. But anyway, Mr. Brickhouse eventually worked his way up the bleachers to the press box area where he was going to sit and watch the game. And Dave said, go talk to him. So I went up to him and I introduced myself. I said, Mr. Brickhouse, you don't remember this, but when I was 12 years old, I wrote you a letter. He said, really? He said, what are you doing? I said, because of you. I said, I'm the new announcer for the Seattle Mariners and I'm going to do today's game between the Mariners and the Chicago Cubs. And it was a uh, large part in you inspiring me as a 12-year-old kid when I wrote you that letter, and I want to thank you for that. He said, really, I wrote you a letter? <laughs> I said, yes. I said, thank you very much, and he gave me a big hug. Because of Jack Brickhouse, George, uh, I've been living my dream for the last 48 years, eight years in the minor leagues, and 40 years now in the big leagues. I can't believe it. I wound up at Southern Illinois University. I started working in the newsroom in January of 1974. You were doing... TV sports while being the voice of SIU baseball, basketball, and football on WCIL radio, where I eventually landed. So I become the sports director at WSIU in the fall of 1974. So in essence, believe it or not, I was your boss, but not really. You graduated in 75, and that's when I took over as the voice of Saluki baseball. And it was a wonderful experience. And I was able to actually do the College World Series in 1977 with Mike Reese, who, by the way, stayed and is still the voice of the Salukis to this day. It's amazing. He's been there now for 48 years. But we both worked with Richard Itchy Jones, a legendary coach and a wonderful human being. I love Itchy. Uh, From the first day I met him, uh, first day of school. Uh, freshman year, I wanted to play baseball. And of course, I didn't have a scholarship. I thought I was pretty good in high school. And so I went to the arena and went to the athletic offices and I wanted to meet the head baseball coach. And Itchy was there. He was in his office. And I knocked on his door and walked in and he greeted me. And he said, come on in. And I said, hey, coach, my name is Rick Riz. I'd like to try out for the baseball team. He said, really, where'd you go to school? I said, Eisenhower High School. He said, oh, Randy Rose. He knew my coach because we had a couple of guys. We had a really good high school baseball team. But anyway, uh, I said, I'd like to try out for the team. He said, well, bring your spikes and your shorts and your glove. And we're going to start tryouts here in the next couple of days uh, for the junior varsity team. Uh, everybody's got a scholarship on the varsity team. We had a really good varsity team. And so uh, I went out there and, and started playing. And uh, I saw about 100 kids out there, you know, playing catch. And I go, oh, man, I'm not going to make it. So. I turned around and I went back to the arena. I remember this, George, vividly, like it was yesterday. And I had my hand on the door of the arena, go back to the locker room to change. And I said, what am I doing? Am I giving myself a chance? 
So I turned around and went back on that field and I stayed. You know, we started playing catch. We started playing games. Guys were cut. Guys quit. Uh, guy, we started playing more games, inter-squad games. Guys got cut. More guys quit. And uh, so long story short, I made the club. I made the JV team and I got my uniform. And I'll never forget it, George. I slept in my uniform that night, went back to my dorm room. I put on my uniform and slept in my uniform. I'm so proud. <laughs> so I tell kids now, you know, believe in yourself. Give yourself a chance. Don't give up on yourself because if you do, you'll never discover what you have inside. And that was the one of the greatest lessons in my life. I walked on, I made that team. I played for two and a half years on the JV team, eventually got a job at WCIL as sports director and to do baseball and college football and, and basketball. But that lesson taught me that if there's anything the rest of my time on the space of the earth, if I want to do it, I can do it, if I, but I got to give myself a chance. And that was one of the greatest lessons I ever taught myself. And I didn't give up and I made the team. And it was so much fun because I learned so much baseball from Itchy. You know, he's such a great coach. I love the man. We still keep in touch. We still call each other in Christmas during the baseball season. He'll call me up. But uh, it was a great time. I learned so much about baseball and life. And uh, I just had a great time out there playing baseball at SIU. We are now some... 40-plus games into the season, Rick. So what are your impressions of the new rules, most notably the pitch-slash-hit clock? George, I love it. I really do. It's uh, trimmed off 25, 26 minutes on an average, you know, so that's really remarkable. And I did the math at spring training even before the season got underway, and I multiplied 25 minutes time 162, you get 4,050, then you turn that into hours. So divide that by 60, you get 67 and a half hours. Divide that by the average game time last year, which was right around three hours, 307. And you get 22.5 games equivalent that the players are off the field. Can you imagine that? An equivalent of 22 and a half games where they're not standing on the field. Your math and is pretty darn good. Oh, <laughs> I learned a lot from Southern Illinois <laughs> University and in third grade, too. But, but that's unbelievable. And they saw you're not enough, you know, you're eliminating action. No, it's the same amount of action in nine innings. It's just compressed now into two to two and a half hour window instead of, you know, three, three and a half hours, sometimes four hours. So I love it. You know, uh, on the first homestand of the year. Uh, we're playing the Cleveland Indians and we played in like two hours and 16 minutes. I got my car. It's nine o'clock. <laughs> I go, oh, no, I go, well, you know, should we be in the seventh inning? And uh, it's great. I love it. I think the players love it. Uh, and there's so many other great things I like, too, you know, with no defensive shifts. We can talk about that. But I love the pitch timer. Well, how has this affected your broadcast? Because you have less time to work with. Yeah, you you, you got to tell a story very quickly. You uh, last year and previous 20, 30 years, you had plenty of time to tell the story. You had to get to the points a little bit quicker. Vince Scully told me many years ago, never start a story with two outs because you're not going to get there even with <laughs> time. So uh, it's, but I love it. I, you know, I love everything about it. So you just have to be quicker and you got to get the same amount of reads and spots and promotions and things like that. So it is a little bit more difficult to get in a story, but the trade-off is unbelievable. So how about the shift and the bigger bases? I love the uh, 
no defensive shifts. I love it. We're getting back to baseball again. I've been talking about this for the last 20 years. There were three guys on the right side of the infield. The outfielders were turned around to the right side for a left-handed hitter. One side of the infield was totally open for a right-handed hitter. You know, you had the second baseman on the other side of the bag. The right side of the infield was totally wide open. And the players, I blame the players. You know, they didn't hit the ball the other way. But now with us getting back to good old-fashioned baseball, the shortstop can be a shortstop. Second baseman can be a second baseman. So if you're asking me about the no defensive shifts, I love it. We're getting back to old-school baseball where your best athletes, two of your best athletes on the field, your shortstop and second baseman, can be athletes. I love it. I'm going to make a dramatic shift here, Rick. You are a native Chicagoan. So is Dave Wills. How did his death affect you? Oh, man, it just makes you think he was a great guy and a, a great broadcaster and a great friend. And when you're in this fraternity as, as you are and you get to know these guys, you become a family. You know, I mean, you don't go out to dinner with the family, the backyard barbecues, but you become a family. And uh, that affected me. And it affected a lot of us in the business because you never know. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. We love what we do. You know, that's why we do it. You know, 49 years in the business. I can't wait to go to the ballpark. I'm 69 years old. But you also realize that, uh, you know, that uh, we come with an expiration date. We just don't know when it is. Hopefully we live a long life. It's a shame that David left way too early. I feel for his wife, his kids, his family, his friends, and for all of us in the business who knew him because he was a great guy, number one, besides being a great broadcaster. So it makes you think about taking care of yourself, you know, making sure you stay healthy for your family and your friends. I was just, I was telling you before we did the interview, I was just diagnosed with prostate cancer. I'm going to take care of it. I know I have it and it's curable. So, um, yeah, it, it affected all of us when we lose a friend of our family. It's it's sad, and I I pray that uh, you know that his family gets through a very very difficult time. And that my thoughts and prayers are with them. If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. We resume with Rick Riz on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'd like to talk to you about your dad, who visited the White Sox press box from time to time. This was years and years and years ago. He was a joy to sit next to, and he was very proud of you. What did he do for a living? My dad worked at a factory, a Whiting Corporation in uh, Harvey, Illinois. I'm so proud of my father. He had a rough childhood growing up as a kid. Uh, my grandfather, who wasn't the greatest guy in the world, left my grandmother and my dad and my uncle and my aunt. My other grandparents were awesome. They were from Italy, too. And, we lived upstairs from them, my mom's mom and dad. But um, my dad had a rough life. He got kicked out of school, Fanger High School. He went out on the CC course and built roads up here in the Pacific Northwest. And then got kicked out of the CC course. And then went back home to Chicago. And thank goodness he went back to school. He went back to Fanger and got his uh, high school degree. And there was he told me there was this one lady, a typing teacher, a business uh, teacher, who took, uh, you know, took to my father and saw a talent, saw something in my dad. 
and he learned how to type and everything. And she helped him get into this six month business school, which he went to. And he graduated from this uh, business school and got a job at Whiting Corporation, working in the office, typing up bills of lading and things like that. So he started from the grassroots level of this corporation. He stayed there for 40 years and worked his way up to become a shipping foreman. They built these huge overhead cranes and track mobiles to move uh, railroad cars from one track to another to build the train, you know, and uh, I was so proud of my father. He did that all his life, but still had time to play with my brother and myself in the backyard or the sandlot to coach my brother's little league team to paint all the advertising signs at St. Isidore Field where we played our little league games. He was the greatest dad in the world, always had time for us, loved the game of baseball, took us to Comiskey Park. I can't say enough great things about my father who instilled in me a work ethic. I saw how hard that he worked, but still had time for his family, how loving father he was to my brother and I, a loving husband to my mom, Julie. I think he was proud of me because, you know, I said I wanted to be a major league broadcaster ever since I was 12. I wanted to play baseball. That didn't work out. But my dad really loved the fact that I got into baseball and he always come out to where I was in the minor leagues in Amarillo, Memphis and Columbus. And of course, to Seattle when I got here and he enjoyed being in the press box, talking with you, talking with John Rooney. Oh, I forgot this. Besides working in a factory all his life, he uh, started writing Little League stories for our local uh, community in Calumet Park. And uh, the paper came out. I think twice a month, it was a bi-monthly uh, uh, newspaper. And they said, hey, nobody's covering the Little League. So he would write stories on Little League games and send them in. And they would print these stories. And the circulation of that little paper, the Cal Park Citizen, tripled because everybody wanted to see their kids' names in the newspaper. And he got as many kids' names in the newspaper as possible. He became a really good writer. So our, our other community, where I went to high school, Blue Island, they had a, a weekly newspaper called the Blue Island Sun Standard, and uh, they hired my father as the sports editor. He covered the Dwight D. Eisenhower Cardinals football team every year, the basketball team, the baseball team. And then I started writing, too. He covered the varsity sports by Don Riz on the, left, on the right side of the sports page. And I covered the sophomore sports uh, by Rick Riz on the left side of the paper. So it was a family affair. It was father and son. We were both writing our local paper, the Blue Island Sun Standard. He was a really good writer. And he was a hero in the community. Everybody knew my dad. Everybody loved my dad. He had this little fedora hat that he wore on the sidelines of the football games, the basketball games. Everybody knew him. I had a lot of fun growing up around a sports family. My mother loving the Cubs. My dad loving the White Sox. My dad being a sports writer and getting involved with our Little League teams and high school teams. So uh, it was just great growing up. So you did the minor league circuit. You wind up in Columbus. You're doing Ohio State football. You're doing AAA baseball. You're named Ohio Sportscaster of the Year. This is a pretty good start. Then the big break, Seattle. But nine years later, you decide to come back to the Midwest. You became the voice of the Detroit Tigers. But you had to replace the legendary Ernie Harwell, who was yeah. fired. And that was not a very comfortable situation. That was one of the toughest things I've ever had to do in my life. And I knew it going in, but I thought Ernie had retired or not retired. They actually pushed him out. They should have never let the guy go ever. Renicky off the bag at first, the pitch, he swings on this, a fly ball to left. Here comes Herndon. He's there. He's got it. The Tigers are the champions of 1984. But Bo Schembechler became 
the president of the Detroit Tigers after being the legendary football coach, as everybody knows, at Michigan. They had the great battles with Ohio State. Funny story about that when I applied for, when I interviewed with the job with Bo. But I knew it was going to be difficult. But Ernie Harwell told me to apply for the job in 1991, which I thought was going to be his final season. And it wasn't. But uh, I thought, you know, what the heck? Dave Newhouse told me, you know, go try for it. You want to be a number one guy. So I, I put in my bid. I, you know, I sent him a resume and tape. Sure enough, they liked it. And I go for my interview at Tiger Stadium. It came down to a couple of us. And so I go to Tiger Stadium. And I bring my proposal, a three-year proposal. They had offered me only a one-year deal. I go, that ain't going to happen. You know, trying to replace Ernie Arwell. Because everybody was in a fewer over, over Ernie leaving. I mean, it was front page news until the war broke out. It is time for a commentary on the Ernie story. I have never seen a worse decision handled so badly, so ineptly, so insensitively. I have never seen such and heard such white-hot anger from so many people. Lawyers, ex-cons, hookers and nuns, sports writers and crap-shooting all-nighters. This town, and not just this town, this state and its people are saying not WJR, not King Tom Monahan, not even the legendary Bo can treat Ernie Harwell the way they treated him. So anyway, I go for my interview with, with uh, Beauchamp Beckler. He's sitting behind his desk. I'm sitting on the other side of the desk. There's eight people in his little office there at Old Tiger Stadium. And he looks at my resume and he goes, oh, you did Ohio State football for two years, 81, 82. And I said, yeah, yeah, we had some great battles. Yeah. He said, yeah, we won both those games. I said, well, you remember the 81 game, Bo? You know, you guys were winning nine to seven and about a minute and a half left in the game. The Buckeyes drove down to your five-yard yard line. You remember that? And he looked around, and I said, you remember Arch Schleister rolling to his right? And Vaughn Broadnax, our fullback, threw the greatest block I've ever seen in my life. He knocked down three guys like dominoes, and i uh, never seen anything like that before. And Schleister dove in the end zone. I said, you remember that, Bo? And As they send Williams in motion. He went like this. I remember the Buckeyes, you know, won that ball game. He goes, son of a B, we should have won that game. And he's pounding his fist on the desk. You know, I go, man, I'm taking off Bo Schembechler. It's awesome. <laughs> and on my birthday, November 17th, he called up. I'm back here in Issaquah, Washington. I answered the phone 730 in the morning. And it's Bo Schembechler. Rick, it's Bo. He said, we want you to be our guy. And I, I remember looking at the phone going, oh, my gosh, what I what I just do? You know, I said, I'll do it, buddy. I'll be there for you. It's going to be tough, but I, I can't do it for one year. He said, no, no, no. He said, we'll give you a three-year contract. And I got everything that he wanted in the contract. And it was difficult. It was really difficult. I was surprised at the writers, the things that they wrote in the paper about me and Bob Rathbun too, who replaced Paul Carey. We went through a lot together, you know, in Detroit and it was very, very difficult. You know, I won't, shy away from that. It was, it was tough. I felt like I had to broadcast seventh game of the world series every day, but eventually the fans came around, but halfway through our first year there, uh, Tom Monahan, the Domino's pizza guy sold to Mike Illich, the little Caesar's pizza guy. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Illich wanted to bring Ernie back for the 93 season. So we had a meeting. I'll never forget. Uh, they had a press conference. We were on the road in Minnesota and it was in Sparky's hotel room with Danny Wald. So we listened in. And George, the first three questions for Mike Illich, the new owner of the team, you're going to rehire Sparky, of course, we're going to rehire Sparky. You're going to resign Cecil Fielder. Yeah, we're going to resign Cecil Fielder. The third question was, are you going to bring Ernie Harwell back? And man, did I perk up. 
And I looked at Sparky and Sparky looked at me. He said, well, I'm going to talk to the boys, he said. I'll never forget that, meaning myself and Bob Rathbun. So when he got back from the road trip, he called a meeting. There was Mike Illich and uh, about six of his lawyers and everybody. And Ernie's uh, uh, representative, uh, Gary Spicer, I believe. And they had his contract. So Ernie had signed the contract. And um, they said, can we do this? Mike Illich looked at me and said, can we bring Ernie back? I said, of course we can. So we brought Ernie Harwell back the next year. And Ernie did six innings of play-by-play. And Bob wasn't going to do any play-by-play. They still wanted me to do six. And I said, Bob Rathbun didn't spend 10 years in the minor leagues to do pre- and post-game shows. I said, that ain't going to happen. So I gave Bobby two of my innings. So I did one, two, eight, nine. Ernie did three, four, five, which is great working with Ernie. I mean, the guy's a Hall of Famer. And then Bobby did six and seven. So we got through that year. The 1994 came along and the strike hit on August the 12th, a gloomy afternoon. It was raining at Tiger Stadium. We're playing the Milwaukee Brewers. And the baseball world just stopped. So the baseball season was over. A week before Christmas, um, I got a phone call saying the Tigers didn't need my services anymore. And I called Dave Niehaus. And Dave Niehaus said, we'll get you back. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me to go back to Seattle and not miss the 1995 season, which saved baseball in Seattle. But 1992, 3, and 4, it was tough. It was a great learning experience. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And it made me stronger and I think a better broadcaster. Tell me about life in Seattle. I've been there. It's oh. a beautiful city with history from rock and roll to coffee. Yeah. It's awesome for music, incredible for coffee. The the central universe for coffee is here with Starbucks. And I love this city. You know, growing up in Chicago was great as a kid, but you know it's flat as a board. Then I get out here to Seattle, there's mountains, there's rivers and streams. I got a creek not too far away from where I live right here, Isabel Creek with salmon in it, huge mountains, Tiger Mountain, Cougar Mountain, the Snoqualmie Summit, which is a half an hour from my house where there's great skiing just straight up. I'm in the foothills of the Cascade Mountain Range here. It's beautiful. And the air is fresh and clean. And I, I just, I love it here. I really do. I had a chance to leave after my first year to go to the Angels. And I said, no, I love Dave Niehaus. I love working with him. I love Seattle. I got divorced and I want to raise my son here. And a few years later, I had a chance to come to Chicago. And I was talking with the White Sox. I never told my father. It would have broke his heart. I said, no. So I never told my dad. He passed away in 2003. But I I love uh, living here and I'll stay here till the day I die. In your long career in Seattle, you've been very much part of the community. Witness for one, your Toys for Kids charity. 27 years ago. Uh, Dave Henderson and I, Dave Henderson was an outstanding center fielder for us and then went on to Boston, helped them get to a World Series, then on to the Oakland A's to win a World Series with Oakland and retired after the 1994 season. We hired him right away to help us out on radio and TV. He was outstanding as uh, as an analyst and I loved working with him. And we worked together for about 12 or 14 years. And after ball games in 1995, we'd go over to in the Pioneer Square, which is the original section of Seattle. It's, you know, a couple hundred years old. The building's still there, still bars, clubs, restaurants, shops. And I love downtown Seattle, especially Pioneer Square, because of all the history. Well, we'd go to either Swanee's after the ball game, where the baseball players hung out, a lot of the fans, and also this other place called McCoy's uh, Firehouse. And we were sitting there one night, and I saw a TV report. Dave and I were sitting at the bar having a beer and we saw a report on the homeless situation 
they said there were 8,316 that they could count. And I turned to Hindu and I said, how many, oh my goodness, over 8,000 homeless people they can count. How many are kids? He said, I don't know. And neither do I. I said, Hindu, something I always want to do. Let's round up the guys, current players at the time, you know, uh, Edgar Martinez and Dan Wilson and Jay Buhner, Aaron Seeley, who lived there, uh, uh, John Olderud, Omar Vizquel, Jeff Nelson, uh, Manny Sinatra, Johnny Moses, Billy Hesman, Paul Sorrento, Julio Cruz, Hendo and myself. And we, we formed a little charity called Toys for Kids. We pooled our own money together, $18,000. And I went looking for these kids. Uh, a friend of mine was running the, the First Avenue Service Center, which was a homeless shelter in downtown Seattle. And I went to him and he said, I got this money. I want to buy toys for your kids at Christmas time. He said, well, we have about 30, 40 kids here during the holiday season. Then he turned me over to the Broadview Women's Shelter and also uh, the uh, Harborview Hospital had a Christmas party for kids, homeless kids, underserved children that they took care of during the course of the year. Then they invited these kids to a Christmas party. So that first year, we spent about $18,000, bought toys for about 300 kids. But then four years later, I got a call from a buddy of mine, Burge Fazio, who was with the RBI Club. He was the publisher of the Seattle PI. And uh, they always had a little dinner and auction at the end of the year and the money would go to different charities, you know, raised a few thousand dollars. And he asked me, what are you guys doing? I said, well, you know, myself and the guys, we buy toys for homeless kids. He said, why don't you, you know, get some signed baseball stuff and we'll uh, raise the money and you'll, we'll give you the money. So we raised about $20,000, you know? And so now I had a little bit bigger pool of money and the auction or the dinner and auction got to be bigger and bigger. We found more and more homeless agencies to work with. You know, we started with three that first year. Last year's auction, we raised over $770,000. We now work with about 35 different homeless agencies. We bought twice, George, for over 16,000 homeless kids and underserved children in King County and now around the state. That's a lot. And we also started a scholarship program. Dave Henderson, my buddy, passed away seven years ago in the winter, Christmas time of 2015. Something we always talked about were scholarships because we had extra money. So uh, after David passed away, I said, we have to start the scholarship program in honor of Dave. And that's what we did. And seven years ago, we had a first scholarship winner, Diasha Sparks. I'll never forget her name. Then we had two, four, six, eight last year. We have 10 winners this year. And each scholarship winner, the Dave Henderson College Scholarship Award, gets a $5,000 scholarship to the college of their choice, whether it's a trade school or a four-year college, a community college, wherever they want to go to extend their education. And it's really grown and it's really something special. And kids get a toy at Christmas time. And it's not just a toy, George, it's, it's hope. They, you know, they know that somebody cares for them. We help their moms in these shelters. We give them a hundred dollar bill at the Christmas parties. And it's like, we gave them a million dollars. Wonderful. I asked this final question to all my guests, Rick. <clears throat> if not for sports broadcasting, what would you have been? Wow. That's a great question. Uh, you know, I love baseball, so I, I guess I would have been going into coaching. You know, I would love to have been a high school teacher, although I don't know if I had the patience to do that, you know, <laughs> but I would love to have been a coach, uh, something like that. But I also wanted to be an architect. You know, I loved drawing and I loved homes and I would do that. I would fiddle around at the kitchen table when I was a kid and draw homes, even the, the layout of the living room and the family room and the bathrooms and the bedrooms, things like that. So I thought it might be a good architect, but thank God uh, the good Lord has blessed me. I stayed on the path of, that I wanted to, and now I'm living my dream of being a major league broadcaster. 
But uh, had I not been a broadcaster, I would have gone into either writing because I love to write, and my dad got me started in that or coaching or something. How about you? If it didn't work out in broadcasting, what would you have been? I don't think you're supposed to ask me that question. <laughs> I don't That's think I do for a living. I ask questions. <laughs> what a kick this has been. Other than a close friend of mine, a high school friend of mine, Dave Belotion, who is the longtime voice of Memphis sports. I've known you longer than anyone else in this business. I've always admired your work. Since we're now 39 again, albeit for the third time, <laughs> I wish you many more years behind the mic. Where the fans of the Mariners have enjoyed your work for so many years. And thank you, Rick Riz, for telling me a story I don't know. You know what? I love that. I love the, the theme of your podcast here. Tell me a story I don't know, because that's what I love to do on the radio and television for many years. Tell me a story I don't know. So thank you so much, George. It was great knowing you, know, knowing you when you first got to Southern Illinois. And I'm so happy that we're still friends after all these years. My thanks to the Seattle Mariners Radio Network, the late and great Dave Niehaus, ABC Sports, WGN-TV, and ABC Action News in Detroit for those wonderful highlights. And my thanks as always to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. TJ Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports. And to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. <laughs>